Well, Aaron, thank you so much. Can everybody hear me okay? I'm used to just speaking in the middle of a smaller room with a smaller crowd and shouting my little heart out. Um, so if this uh, doesn't work, if it gives feedback, I'll take it off and I'll just walk around uh, like I usually do. Um, thank you. Uh, I want to say thank you to Aaron. I want to say thank you to all the nice people who've welcomed me here today. Um, the ones whose names I can remember are Bob, Doug, Linda, Joseph, and many more. I'll say that. Um, so this is, this is a great honor for me to be able to talk. And I'm actually going to try to keep my talk to as short as possible so that we can have more time for question and we can uh, learn from each other in dialogue rather than monologue. Before I do that, though, I really, really want to teach you a song. Uh, and this song is part of our shared heritage from the Psalms, the Psalm of David. It's Psalm 133. I forgot to write down what page number that is uh, in your Bible. But do we have it up here? Okay, so these are the words uh, in Hebrew to that psalm. Hinematov umanaim shevet achim gam yachad. And what that means is how good and pleasant it is for brothers and sisters to sit together. Uh, and that's what we're doing right now. So if it feels good to you, I think we should sing about it. But first, I'm going to teach you. Uh, I'm going to teach you the tune, and I'm going to do that just by humming. There's there's two parts to it. Um, so I'm going to hum along, and as you catch the tune, I want you to hum it along with me. Okay. And don't be shy, don't be shy, it's safe space, no witnesses. Um, I tell people as if you're learning to sing and you feel self-conscious about it, what you do is you close your eyes. Because as we know from the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, if you don't see people, they can't see you. So they don't know that it's you making that noise. So if, you're, if you like, you can close your eyes and just hum the song with me and I'll, I'll announce the B part as well, but the words stay the same. Just as you're getting that, I'm going to do the B part now. It goes a little higher. Back to the first part. Ah uh... 
words. If you uh, are shy about the Hebrew, it's okay to just keep humming because what we're trying to do here is make a noise together because when we all make a noise together, in some small way, our souls begin to rub up against each other and we live the spirit of this particular psalm. So hum along. Uh, if you can't carry a tune, feel free to beat on the side of, uh, your, of your pew and, uh, or just take a, take, a, take a jump into the words with me. Hine matobu manaim shevet achim gam yachan Hine matobu manaim shevet achim gam yachan Hine shevet achim gam yachan Hine matov shevet achim gam yachan Hine matov umanayim shevet achim gam yachan Hine matov umanayim shevet achim gam And I think it's in that spirit that Aaron is doing this Voices series. So I want to tell you how honored I am to be included in it. And I wanted to teach you that song uh, because that's how I always end services in, in my congregation. Um, just as a reminder before everybody parts, how wonderful it was for us to be together. So you've had your practice and we're going to do it again at the end. Okay. Um, so I have the uh, unenviable task of explaining explaining Judaism in 20 minutes or less. So um, rather than trying to wing it, I'm going to call upon an example from our tradition, and that is the example of Rabbi Hillel. Uh, Rabbi Hillel uh, and his, his um, friend, uh, but sometimes adversary, uh, Rabbi Shammai. And Hillel and Shammai argued about a lot of stuff, and there were examples of how they, they differed in their approaches. Um, there's a famous story about uh, a person, uh, I believe in Rome, who came up to, well, the Roman... Um, he was a Roman, but it was in Jerusalem. That's a long story. This person went up to uh, Rabbi Shammai and said, if you can explain to Ju Judaism to me while standing on one foot, I will convert right away. And for Shammai, uh, this was sort of an insulting question. Judaism was so big uh, and so complex and so beautiful and so profound that to explain it on one foot was a ridiculous request, and he thought he was making fun of him. So he, he hit him with a stick. He hit him with a, like a builder's stick and ch chased him away. Uh, so he went to, so this, this, uh, this potential proselyte went to Rabbi Hillel, and said, made the same deal. If you can explain Judaism to me on one foot, I will convert right away. And so Hillel did this. He said, whatever is hateful to you, he didn't have the feedback, whatever is hateful to you, do not do to your neighbor. The rest is commentary. Now, go and study the commentary. And the person converted right away and became one of these scholars who studied with Hillel. Um, it is a big tradition to boil down into a small place, but I'll, I'll do my best. Um, 
where I'd like to begin is our master story. And our master story of the Jewish people is the story of the Exodus, is the story of our people being slaves in Egypt um, and being redeemed by God and God's agent Moshe or Moses. Um, we were able to leave Egypt uh, by the mighty hand and the outstretched arm of God. Uh, we then went to journey in the desert for a while. I'll say it was almost an excessive amount of time. And, um, and on the path, uh, God thought, well, they're free people, but maybe um, even a free people needs a guide on what to do. That is, if you can do anything in the world, what should you do? And so God gave them a guide. And that guide was the Torah. And that was the, that was the instruction, the laws, the teachings that God gave to Moses at Mount Sinai. And then Moses gave that to the people. And we've been working at it. We, I'll say we've been working at it um, ever since. There's another important piece here that distinguishes, uh, I'll say, the Jewish read of this master story. And it is the idea that there is a Torah or an instruction that is written down and there is a Torah that is uh, an oral tradition. You may have heard of this. There's the written Torah and the oral Torah, the Torah Shabiktav and the Torah Shabal Peh. And um, the idea is that as God was giving Moshe these uh, commandments, Moshe said, well, this seems a little confusing. Uh, this part really doesn't spell things out very well, or it can be interpreted a lot of different ways. And so God said, okay, I'll tell you what it means. Don't write this down but I want you to tell Joshua. And then Joshua will tell the elders, and then the elders will tell uh, their students. And so there were sort of two strains of teaching. One was the written teaching, and one was the oral teaching. And these have always uh, accompanied us throughout our history, and I'll explain uh, a little more about that later. So we get through the desert. We settle into Canaan, the promised land, uh, and then there are wars, there are judges, um, there are kings, despite Samuel's best efforts. Uh, there was a series of kings. Um, there were a couple of temples. Those were kind of nice. Uh, one was bulldozed. We go in exile. We come back. We build another one. Um, and then we get to uh, what I'll call a common crisis. Um, Can we say that the people who came out of Egypt were Jews? They were called Israelites. They were called B'nai Yisrael, or the sons of Israel, uh, the, the, the line of Jacob. Um, but then that was just this one group of people who were following this God that had no image, um, that wasn't affixed to a particular place or a particular uh, visage, but a God that we felt connected to nonetheless. And we connected to that God, uh, based on the instructions that we got in the Torah, through the common practice of animal sacrifice. Right? We had a temple, and when we needed to communicate with God, uh, we would gather during our pilgrimage festivals like Passover, like Shavuot, um, like Sukkot. We would gather, and we would make these great sacrifices to thank God for our bounty. Um, in between the holidays, we also made sacrifices. Um, if we did something we weren't proud of, if we made a mistake, um, you know, there was, there, was a, there was a guide. They said, okay, if you do this kind of sin, uh, that's two doves and a goat. Um, I'm, I'm oversimplifying. But people would uh, go and make sacrifices. Their primary means of connecting to God, whether for thanks or petition, 
uh, or to make right some sort of sin that they had was to uh, go to the temple and worship um, in this way. And then we didn't have that anymore. The line was cut. Um, when the Romans destroyed the temple in 70 of the Common Era, uh, a whole people there were in crisis. Imagine if you had one mode of communication with the most important person in your life, and one day the line went dead. Now, that could end that relationship. Um, and if it was the guiding relationship of your life, it was, if it was your chief mentor, as it were, um, you'd, be at, you'd be at a loss. And so in this crisis, there were a few different responses by the people who were in that neighborhood. Um, one response, and you'll correct me on the details, but this is, again, an oversimplification. I should have started by saying, um, I hope I don't offend you. When you ask me questions, rest assured that you cannot offend me. There is no, uh, there's no question that's going to bother me. Um, there's no question that I'm gonna, I'm gonna leave or anything like that. Um, just, I want, I want to have perfect understanding, but I want to apologize in advance if I oversimplify this beautiful story. And one response to this line being cut with God was there were a group of people who said, what do we do? Well, if you remember, about 40 years ago, there was this guy. And this guy had a powerful message of love. And his followers said, hey, remember in Zechariah and the prophet Zechariah and some places in, in Yeshayahu, what, what people in the future might call Isaiah, where it talked about this certain figure who would come and usher in an era of, era of peace. And he's got a few followers around here. Let's see what they have to say. That was one response, and that one response um, is now probably by numbers the, the greatest truth that's spreading through the world right now in Christianity. Um, another response was a group of people, I think we'd identify them today as the Pharisees, um, said, what do we do? Well, we still have this Torah. We still have this written law that we study all the time because we're, we're commanded to teach it to our children. Um, and we also have this oral tradition. That's a, another piece that's very important to Judaism. At this same crisis of 70 AD or CE, um, Jews were being slaughtered by the thousands, especially the, the community leaders. And those community leaders were the vessels of that oral tradition that tradition had forbade them from writing down. And they said, there just aren't enough of us left. What if we lose this oral tradition from God? Let's write this stuff down. I know we're not supposed to, but this is a crisis. So they wrote down um, the commentaries and the conversations that they'd been having for generations. And this became the Mishnah. Uh, circa a hundred or so of the common era. And then they kept talking about it. And then another time uh, of crisis, around six to seven hundred of the common era, they faced another extinction event. And they said, well, let's write this down. And that became the Gemara. And these things together became uh, the Talmud. And so Jews today study uh, our scripture. Uh, the Bible from Genesis through uh, Ezra and Nehemiah, and we also study these 
commentaries, these redactions of the oral law that were bred again of this same common crisis of the destruction of the second temple in 70 of the common era. So this is what sort of uh, informs our study today. And I wanted to make it clear that our peoples co-arose out of the same event, different responses, same source. And that's where we are today. And I wanted to bring that psalm to say, we have more in common than our important differences. So this is, uh, this is Judaism on one foot. Today we are people who get together on a regular basis, I hope, and we sing and we pray and we learn, we eat, we cry and we mourn and we rejoice and we comfort one another and we work for greater justice in the world, just like you do. Um, we do so in uh, slightly different buildings with slightly different books. What I brought here was my, uh, my Siddur, which is our Jewish prayer book. Um, we have a pretty thick book. Um, half of it's in Hebrew, as you can see. And uh, we have a fixed liturgy, um, meaning we pray the same prayers in the same orders every time with subtle variations for the Sabbath and for holidays. Um, and it's not because we like wrote memorization of things, but it's because Jews believe very deeply in the power of personal prayer, right? The kind of improvisational prayer that we often just think of, that's, that's what the Christians do, that's not what we do. We say the same words over and over again um, so that we've been saying since Hebrew school when we were six years old. Um, but it's because the rabbis believe so strongly that personal prayer moves God that they said we need to contain it for our own safety. And we make room for personal prayer and silent prayer. And um, one time I was having a crisis and my rabbi said to me, here's your prayer. Um, take a baseball bat into the woods and beat up a tree for a couple of hours and scream at God and share everything that is in your heart, no matter how painful. God can take it. So we make room for personal prayer. We make room for uh, a God who is infinitely patient with us infinitely loving, um, who always pray answers prayer, even when the answer is no. Uh, but that's, uh, in a nutshell, who we are. I want to back up into my personal story for just a second, because uh, Aaron had asked me to. Um, this is something that I was not born into. This is something I came to as an adult. Uh, I converted to Judaism at the age of 25, which, well... So it'll be, it'll be 16 years this summer. Um, I came from a family that I'll call mixed Protestant. Uh, my, uh, I was baptized Lutheran. I was confirmed Methodist, went to an Episcopal high school, just because we moved around a couple of times when I was a kid. And there, the, the Lutheran church uh, where we moved to was an hour and a half away, so we were Methodists. Um, <laughs> And so, and I was always involved in activities. I was involved in youth group, but by the time I'm in high school and people are, and I'm going to these retreats and people are saying, you know, what's your personal relationship with Jesus like? I had to confess, like, dude, I'm here for the cookies and the girls. Um, <laughs> I had to be honest. And later when I was in college, uh, I met a Jewish woman 
and we got married and we had a family and uh, she said to me she said because of you know how we characterize who is jewish the children will be jewish ver by virtue of her being jewish i didn't have to convert because she said that was a really personal thing for me to do and so i didn't i was an avowed atheist i was an intellectual snob i thought i was too smart to believe in god i don't know if you know anybody like that or if you are anybody like that um but that was me and so um and then my sons got older. I had two little boys, and the oldest, I think, was maybe five years old. And he, uh, he was going to, he was starting his Jewish education. He was going to the preschool. He was going to Sunday school, things like that. And I thought, well, I can't, I don't feel comfortable as a father being removed from that, being not a part of his education, not being able to support it. So tell you what, I'll take the class. I'll take the class just so I can answer some questions that he has. But I'm still, can't be Jewish because I'm an atheist. And so I took the class, and over the course of a year, uh, it was my wife and I and another couple meeting in the rabbi's study for uh, a year, uh, periodically, and um, I felt like I was coming home, in a way. Uh, I was always a bit of an oddball. I was a city boy born in the country. Um, I was uh, always a little bit different. Um, I had a really hard time with the personal faith commitments that Christianity required of me. And I have to say, it's not, and, and later I realize it's less about Christianity than it is about Christians. And it's about the Christians that I experienced in the communities that I was in. Um, it felt like, uh, the, to me, that um, I could hang with the Sermon on the Mount, but that it came from a design, divine source didn't seem necessary to me. And the people who wanted me to be Christian asked me to believe in this thing more than they asked me to do these things that he did. Again, that's a judgment on particular people in a particular place and time, not Christianity as a whole. But the more I learned about Judaism, that it had encouraged questioning. I didn't, what I didn't mention about these oral traditions that we wrote down is that most of them are fierce arguments. Most of them are debates about people earnestly trying to discern what God wanted from them. I talked a little about Hillel and Shammai, these two um, called them Bar Plugtas. They were friends, but they were sort of adversaries in the study hall. And um, they were having a debate about some fine matter of Jewish law. And the debate, uh, these were actually their students, and the debates rose up to heaven, and the clouds parted, and this voice came from heaven and said, Elu ve'elu. Dvarim Elohim Chaim. These and these are the words of the living God. Both sides. But, said the voice, the law will be decided according to Beit Hillel. And the rabbis asked, how can this be? How can both sides be speaking the words of the living God and then one win, one prevail? And the other rabbis answered, it's because of the character of the students of Beit Hillel. If you remember the character of Hillel in that first story, because of their, the students are mild-mannered and agreeable. And Shammai's students, they only say their own point. They only teach their own teaching. But Hillel's teachings, uh, their students always start with Shammai's teachings and then weigh in on their ideas. So it's a tradition that encourages conversation, questioning, doubt. So it was natural that when I finished the class, and my wife said to me, so what are you going to do? I said, I don't know. Everything is such a beautiful vocabulary that rings so true to everything in my experience. 
but I can't because I don't believe in God. And she said to me, that's okay, a lot of us don't. <laughs> Did everybody hear that? I was whispering. Um, and that it speaks larger to what Judaism is. Um, Judaism is not simply a religion because you can be Jewish without following the religion. Judaism isn't simply an ethnicity because you can join it. You can be adopted into it. You can naturalize into it. If it was simply an ethnicity, there wouldn't be converts, and I wouldn't be here today. If it was simply a religion, there wouldn't be a world of Jews who, just like the world of Christians, some, some go to church and some don't. Um, we are a people. Uh, most probably best understood as a nation. If you think of the nation of the United States of America, you can be born here, and you can take it for granted your whole life, but you're still an American, and nobody can question that. Or you can naturalize into it, and if you do, they make you study. Right? I've been American my whole life. I could not tell you right now what the Third Amendment to the Constitution is, but if you ask somebody who just finished naturalizing, they could tell you all of them in a row, and probably like sing a tune with it too. So Judaism is a nation, a nation that left Egypt, and as the scripture says, when they went, an Erev Rav, a mixed multitude went with them, who thought those people have something, and we're gonna go with them. It's this nation that got the Torah, that got this instruction, and we're instructed to then take this instruction and become a light to all other nations. And I wanna speak just a second about the concept of chosenness. Um, the other thing that attracted me about Judaism is the, it wasn't, there was no ex claim on the exclusivity of the truth. You could be Jewish, and Christians could be Christians, and Muslims could be Muslims, and Buddhists could be Buddhists, and all of you could exist in the world together without making any kind of judgment on the destiny of their souls. If we're chosen, I believe it's in the sense that we were selected for a special job. The United States has a very large standing army in the hundreds of thousands, and there's SEAL Team 6, and there's the Green Berets. They have special jobs to do that doesn't denigrate what the rest of the work is at all. Um, and why do we have this special job? Because we were given this unique experience. We were slaves, we were set free, and we were made to wander. Um, does anybody here have a favorite Bible verse that you know by heart? Just like one verse that you know by heart? Okay. So here's mine. And it's unfair because I was in seminary for five years, so I had a lot of time to figure this out. Um, my favorite Bible verse, and uh, it's, uh, uh, it's, it's, in, it's in your book too, um, is Exodus chapter 23, verse 9. Don't look it up right now. Just trust me. You can look it up later. Um, Everybody get that? Um, it goes like this. A stranger you shall not oppress. And you were strangers. And you know what that feels like. You know the heart of the stranger because you were strangers in the land of Egypt. You have this mission because you have this core empathy. 
and then we were made to wander in the desert, which was also good practice because we've been wandering for most of history since then. Um, that's what I believe it means to be chosen. Um, and it's funny because you can also choose to be chosen. Uh, and that's, that's the story of Judaism on one foot, and that's my story in a nutshell. Again, I, I want to open this up to questions if I can. Yes. Hey, so, um, so the Jewish people have had a temple, right? And they were they were going to the temple, and the temple was destroyed. Mm-hmm. And so they they were cut off from God, right? Right. So what was it about what what was it about the temple that made it special? Is this where the is this where the Ark of the Covenant stored? Is this why not just build a new temple? Um, so, so all of those things. I mean, it was, um, it was where the Ark of the Covenant was stored. Um, it was where all those things that we read about in Exodus when they said, make this candlestick and all this beautiful stuff in gold. Um, it was a special place. Um, why haven't we built another one since? Might be a good question. Uh, there's, a, there's a philosopher called Maimonides who lived about a thousand years ago, and he identified this um, need for a temple as an intermediary step, right? One that by that point, perhaps we'd grown out of. When we left Egypt, the only way we knew how to connect to God, because that's what all of our neighbors was, was to kill an animal in a place and cook it. And then the priests, which were this sort of separate class, got to eat that day. So we didn't give them land. Um, That's how people connected to God. And we did this for about a thousand years and the second time we lost it, maybe God was sending us a message that we didn't really need it anymore. It was a step in our development that was necessary because if we went into the desert and God said, I want you to pray three times a day and note bring any animals, people say, well, what am I going to do with this goat? Um, it would have been so different from their experience that it never would have took. And so that was a mode of worship that we had. And when we lost the second temple, um, people figured there was this prophet, um, Hosea. And Hosea said something that, that stuck with me. And there's a particular story about a rabbi, um, Rabbi Yohanan ben Zakkai. And there's a story that we tell in the beginning of every service that we have at my shul, at my uh, temple. Uh, rabbi Yohanan ben Zakkai once was walking with his disciple, Rabbi Joshua near Jerusalem after the destruction of the temple. Rabbi Joshua looked at the temple ruins and said, Oi! Oi Lanu, alas for us, the place which atoned for the sins of the people Israel through the ritual of animal sacrifice lies in ruins. Then Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai, his teacher, spoke to him these words of comfort. Be not grieved, my son. There is another way of gaining atonement, even though the temple is destroyed. We must now gain atonement through deeds of loving kindness. For it is written in the prophet Hosea, loving kindness I desire, says God, and not sacrifice. So by that time they figured it out. If we keep building these things and they keep turning, they keep being torn down, and P.S., we're not as good people as we think we could be, maybe we should try something else. And then they became became focused on studying the commandments. Those commandments were urging people toward kindness and justice and empathy. And that became Judaism. Before, there was no Judaism before the destruction of the separate... That's just what everybody did. That's just, you know, it wasn't a Jew, he was Bob, right? 
and hi, Bob. Um, and uh, and it was only with that rift and the different responses that it became Christianity and Judaism, and uh, and we've been living together ever since. Does that answer your question? Yes, what's your name? Oliver. Oliver. Oh, um, you, you spoke about this a little bit, but I'm just, uh, I'm kind of fascinated by your backstory and how, can, can you comment a little bit on how it is for you um, sort of finding your identity in a, a tradition that I sort of uh, thought had a strong kind of ethnic, um, you know, identity, I suppose, mm -hmm. uh, going back. So what, what's that been like, you know, finding yourself in, in sort of a, maybe I'm off base saying Not that. at all, not at all. That's a good question. Um, and one that not every rabbi has the privilege of answering because most of us, uh, you know, were born to it. Um, most of us grew up in the, in the religion, did youth group, uh, were camp counselors in religious camps and things like that and went to, and, Jewish studies majors in college, and I came to this as a uh, after an 11-year career in financial analysis, <laughs> and uh, and uh, you tell it's a second career because I have this gray hair. Um, um, what I didn't say that my father uh, also had a second career as a history professor. His first career was as a Southern Baptist minister, uh, third generation from Southwestern Seminary in Fort Worth. Um, so that's uh -oh. that's a little bit where I was coming from. It's a great place to start if you're going to be a Jew, I tell you. Uh, no, my father, my, father, my father is not Jewish. Uh, not yet. I'm working on him. Um, so it, it, I'll tell you, it's been, it has been a joyful challenge. Um, and walking in communities where people have had this their whole lives, and I've kind of, I'll say, come by it honestly. I've done, I've done some of the work, and I will never have had some of the experiences that people have had. Um, I can say with near certainty that I have no blood relatives who perished in the Holocaust, which has been a huge defining character of American Jewry for the last 70 years. Um, but my sons do, because their mother uh, came from a family where her grandparents um, had both survived the camps and then come to America, but other family had been lost. Um, you know, I have no, no relatives in Israel right now, just uh, brothers, I'll say. Um, so that has, been, that has been different, but we also happen to live in an age where if you look, if you, have you ever heard of these Pew reports that talk about religion sometimes? Um, where we live in an age where a great percentage of people end up other than where they start off. Uh, I think this is a beautiful thing about our age is that you can start off with one tradition and you can move into other traditions without being totally cut off from society. Um, I'll say 500 years ago, if you decided, if you were Jewish and you decided you didn't want to be, um, you had no support network because the Christians wouldn't accept you uh, and your Jewish community wouldn't accept you and, uh, and vice versa. If you were a Christian and you decided to be Jewish, um, you were economically, socially cut off and left to wander. Um, now it's not like that. Now we live uh, in the United States of America, which is the best country in the world to be a religious person. Uh, because of the kind of uh, freedom we have. Um, for me, it's been uh, a 16-year so far journey of uh, translation sometimes, um, which is, gives, it's why I love speaking places like this, because I know the questions that what Christians are saying when they're asking their questions, um, and I know uh, 
what rabbis might you know answer, but only know those words in Yiddish. Um, but it's been uh, it's been an experience for me. But it's been a positive one because I'm Jewish because the community that I was in uh, opened their arms to me, and it gets better because um, the wife I talked about that was my my first wife. Um, we've also always had divorce, which is um, a thing. Uh, when I a few years later, when I remarried, so I, I married a Jewish woman, had two children, they were Jewish, and then I became Jewish. So we started off with one Jewish person, and then we had four Jewish people. And then later on, when I remarried, uh, my wife uh, wasn't Jewish when we met, and I said to her, I don't necessarily want you to convert, I just want you to learn about it, and she did, and then she converted. That's five, uh, and we've now had two children. So from one Jewish person, we now have seven Jewish people, um, because every step of the way, the community has embraced me and my family with open arms. And so that's made it tremendously easy. Now, I never had an issue until I applied for jobs to be a rabbi. And people thought, well, you know, is he really Jewish? Um, and then I, I, I was blessed to come in contact with Burbank Temple Emmanuel, um, where we have a very diverse community. We have a preschool that's been there for decades, many families uh, where one parent's Jewish and one not. And um, we've always embraced these families in our community and where uh, some more traditional communities have been a little weird about having a rabbi who uh, has a John with an H in it. Um, uh, that guy's name was Yochanan, by the way, it's in translation. Um, uh, in my community, they said, uh, I, I told them that I was a convert, and, and I said, is that okay <laughs> with everybody? And one person actually said, well, my only concern is that converts are usually really strict and they're really judgy, and they think everything should be done like the right way. And I was like, I get it. I'm over it. It's been long enough. So, um, so that's that's been part of my story. It's I've always been warmly embraced, and I've always taught that kind of embrace to other people as we welcome new people uh, into my community. Uh, I'd say of my regular uh, Sunday morning crowd, except I do it on Saturday, it's about 40% people who have converted or are on the way to converting. Um, so you make. Judaism sound very inclusive and, you know, like ethnically, religiously, all that. Mm -hmm. um, our understanding of the uh, history of, of the Hebrews is a little, a little more violent mm -hmm. and bloody. Oh, we got that um, too. Don't get me and, wrong. <laughs> well, so I'm, I'm just curious kind of like how, um, like has it been sort of a journey, like a re-understanding of like the Torah and just like the the history of the Hebrews, or are you like more of a sort of progressive? Right. Well, Jew? I am that. Um, so I'll say I'll say this. I talked earlier uh, about our friend Shmuel, uh, also known as Samuel. He's got two books, very popular. And um, in the beginning, he was the prophet for this people who said, "We want a king," and he said, "No, that's a bad idea. That king is going to have conscriptions and taxes and all this stuff." P.S. That's what Solomon did later. Um, and you don't, you don't need that. And they said, we want to be a king because we are a nation just like any other nation. And we want to be a nation like any other nation. And so the joke that some uh, rabbis tell each other, the Jews are just like everybody else, only more so. <laughs> if you want to preach peace, we have the most beautiful text in the world on peace. If you want to talk about ethnic violence, we've got that too. 
if you want to talk about redemption and being held no matter who you are or where you're from, we've got that. If you want to talk about wrath, man, have we got that. I was looking at a translation the other day, which was interesting. It used the same word. It was about the golden calf and how God was mad and Moses was mad. And uh, whenever but the, the word Hebrew, af, for anger, is always the same, is the same throughout the text. But when the English translation um, translated it different for Moses and God. God was, uh, Moses was angry. God was wrathful. He gets his own verbs. So I'll say, you know, we have the book that you read, right? We have this different idea of, we have, people say there's, there's the Old Testament God and there's the New Testament God. And that's a wonderful thing. Um, um, and we own that. Uh, but we have also always had the strain of peace. Anger is a response. It's a flare-up. It's a fight-or-flight response. And the antidote to always, that has always been we practice peace, we meditate on peace to quell this natural urge toward anger. Um, the book of Joshua is one of the greatest war stories ever told. It's all fighting and conquering and everything. And then we have Judges. And Judges stinks. Judges is like just this degradation of human authority. Um, we have David, who's this wonderful character. Not perfect. Uh, and then we have a lot of kings after that. Um, some are good, some are violent. Um, we own it because we need to own our human stories to be able to speak the truth of them and in order to counteract them. Right? There's this passage in the Torah that the rabbis debated about. It says, it's the one about the Ben Sarav or Moray. It's the, 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 uh, the bad son. If you've ever seen this passage about the bad son, it says, if there's a son and he's arguing with his parents, you take him to the town elders and you stone him, which is ugly. Like, I don't know a single parent who loves that story. You might like it sometimes. You might kind of get it, but no, no, it's a bad story. Um, and the rabbis debated this. They said, is this a mitzvah? Is this a commandment that anybody ever actually followed? Because it's disgusting. And then, but they thought, okay, this is from God. Like, we can't think something from God is disgusting or violent or excessive. How, how do we square that? And then the rabbis concluded, this was placed in the Torah for us to study it and meditate on it and never do it. Right? Because nobody in the history that anybody had thought of had ever done that, right? There are similar things. It's, there's all this. There's a lot of the death penalty, right? It's like gather wood, gather wood on Shabbat. That's the death penalty. Do this. That's the death penalty. Um, by the time of the Talmud, when the when they had formed the Sanhedrin, this court to do death penalty cases, um, they took the scripture at face value. It said we don't, we're not going to say it doesn't want the death penalty, but then they adjusted the rules of evidence. You know, if somebody's going to get killed for picking up sticks on Shabbat, you have to, two people have to see him, and they have to tell him he's doing something wrong, and he says, I know, I'm going to do it anyway, and then they have to tell him again, it's a death penalty, I know, I'm going to do it anyway. Um, and they adjusted the system without adjusting the Torah. They took the word of God verbatim, but they made it so the death penalty was never enacted in cases like that. And there was a, the, the, the tagline was, if a court killed one person in 70 years, it was considered a bloody court. So what we do is we take these real human stories, and man, if Genesis isn't like Dynasty, I don't know what is. We take these real stories of real humans, and we own that, 
and then we work against it, and then we work for something positive. Um, I own violence done by uh, Jewish sources. Um, I don't, but I'm not going to gloss over that we're just like everybody else in that sense. Um, that's, that's a bit expansive. Uh, I think each people needs to own its own disasters and come up with solutions together. Does that make sense? So do you consider yourself at this point an atheist, a theist, an agnostic, deist, and, and how, how does that come into play with your Judaism? So let's say I have a different answer now. I have a very different answer now. Um, now I think I'm too smart not to believe in God. Uh, that was my thing in the beginning. And when I actually, I went to the rabbis when I was converting, they have a panel of three rabbis ask you questions. And their questions aren't, do you believe? Their questions are, um, are you done with all of your prior religions that you can, that you can at least, you know, not have something else? And if something bad happens to the Jewish people, where will you be? Right? Because stuff like that happens all the time. Are you going to skip out on us? And I said, I'm going to be wherever my sons were. So at the moment that I joined, it was about peoplehood and solidarity. Um, and then I grew up. And then I had sons being raised. And then I had more and more existential questions. Before I believed in God, I believed in what was called the committee. Um, I had too much good luck in my life for there not to be somebody watching out for me. <laughs> and I thought it was a group of like five people in a room somewhere like, oh, John did it again, let's figure this out. Um, and then I, uh, and then things would happen and I would find myself praying. I think when my, when my youngest was born, and even though I didn't know who I was talking to yet, I said, God, I know we don't talk. Uh, you can make him as crazy as you want to, as long as he's healthy. I'll deal with everything on the back end. <laughs> Just give me a good start. Um, moments like that have pushed me to prayer. And the more moments like that I've had, the more comfortable that prayer space has been so that I can go into this, you know, our services are about two and a half hours long. This is starting to feel like that now, I know. But um, our, our services are about two and a half hours long. And in most services, that's about 10 minutes of sermon time. And so we're praying for a good two hours and change of a rote thing that's on the page. Um, and I'm in a place where I can dig into that, but it takes me to this meditative place where I'm actually having a private conversation with God. And I, and I would define uh, my current uh, theological stance as somewhere between you know, a rational deist, because I can look at the span of human history and explain every single thing by science or sociology or what have you in a very atheistic fashion. Has anybody ever seen The Apostle with Robert Duvall? Great, great movie. And he's just this crazy guy, and he does bad things, and he is in this fix, and he's up in his mom's house, up in his old bedroom, and he is shouting. And he says, Jesus, I'm mad at you. This is, this, is, this is Sonny talking. I've always called you Jesus, and you've always called me Sonny. And Jesus, I'm mad at you. I'm mad at you. And, and, he, and he's just speaking like one person to another. And I have my rational side, but most days I feel like Sonny. Like I can have that conversation with God. And I realized that when I didn't believe in God, it was that I didn't believe in the God that I was told was. Now, if somebody tells me that they don't believe in God, I say, well, describe for me that God. Because chances are, I don't believe in him either. 
but I know the relationship that I have with something that is greater than myself, that is an inspirational source for all love and wisdom. Um, when you talk about wrath, uh, the other thing that I like to teach is, I don't think God makes us cry, right? When we have sickness, when we have disaster that we can't explain, you say, why is God judging me like this? Why is God doing this to me? I don't believe in a God that makes us cry. I believe in a God that cries with us and teaches us to cry with each other. That's what the source of the scripture is for me. It's a lesson in how do we hold each other. And it has a divine inspiration. In regards to the, uh, the importance of the temple and the idea of, of the way to worship God is to sacrifice an animal in this specific place, um, do you feel like the, the religion still has a connection to that in some way? And uh, what I'm getting at is, and I, I mean this in the least political way possible, the uh, Israel-Palestine mm -hmm. situation, it seems like both of those religions, uh, at least in that particular area of the world, make it very important to be in that particular place. And it also seems like they don't, like if that place is so important to them that they don't want anybody else there. Right. Uh, and, uh, and I was curious what your perspective is on that. Well, my, okay, so you, we saved the largest four-hour answer for the last four minutes. Um, so I'm going to speak for John right now. Uh, I'm, going to sp I'm not speaking for the state of Israel. I'm not speaking for the Jewish people. I'm going to speak uh, for John. I'm going to preamble this with um, some of my, in my personal experience, there are some Baptists who drink and there are some Baptists who don't. Right? And just to lay that out, that there is a diversity of opinion within Judaism. Um, there are those who would build the temple today brick by brick. And there are those who have been rehearsing the proper way to sacrifice animals. So that when we can, we will. Um, that's a minority, uh, but a vocal one. And there are some people who aren't quite that out there. Um, but still believe strongly that uh, Israel should be a Jewish state and an exclusively Jewish state. Um, what I see is, and, and then there are those who would say, this is more trouble than it's worth. The violence that we see there is contrary to our values and, and we should get out immediately. Um, in fact, when, the, the, they were found, when Theodore Herzl and his friends were picking sites for a Jewish homeland in a context where we were kicked out of every other country, they took turns, so we always had some place to go. Um, they thought, okay, well, Israel's a nice place. That's Canaan, that's promised land. Um, Uruguay is nice. They're not fighting us in Uruguay. Um, or Argentina, might have been Argentina. Um, so, you know, why do we have to be there? Um, what I can say is that Israel is a, uh, is a miracle today. This is what I fully believe, that out of the um, hell, that was the Shoah, the, the Holocaust. Uh, and I use Shoah as opposed to Holocaust because a Holocaust is a Greek word for a sacrifice that is entirely consumed in fire, meaning something redemptive is accomplished by that sacrifice. And that, to me, is, is anathema. Um, it was a human horror and a failure of free will. We call it the Shoah, which just means catastrophe. Um, out of that catastrophe that happened in the context of not being welcome anyplace else in the world, people said, we need a place where we can go. 
and there had been a continuous Jewish presence in small numbers and large since the time of Joshua. And so let's, let's give it a try. Um, and what they did in 1948 was establish um, the first and still only democracy in the Middle East and try their level best and continue to try their level best to make an open society and a civil democracy uh, within a very difficult neighborhood. Um, and I fully believe that these, the, the episodes of violence that we see are a people trying to protect themselves from terrorists, or not from, not from, it's not Jew-Palestinian, it's uh, Israeli Hamas, it's Israeli Hezbollah, it's, there are organized groups of terrorist organizations funded by other countries who are using this us versus them dialogue uh, to meet their own ends and using their various peoples to, set, to, to create this problem. Um, and we're defending ourselves as we should. Um, and uh, what I'll, I'll say we've always had peace, we've always had violence. Um, I won't say we've never turned the other cheek because there is a strain of that in the rabbis as well, that they can do anything to your body but they can't take your soul away. And engaging in violence sometimes does take your soul away. Um, so what's happening now is uh, a free people defending its right to exist against organized forces with a contrary mission. Um, and God willing, we will always be there. And we should continue to strive to do it with the values that we have of promoting and protecting peace, recognizing the human dignity of all of God's creatures. The rabbis looked at the story of Adam and Eve and said, why did, you know, why did uh, God create everybody out of this one person? And they said, well, it's, it's kind of like a king is making coins and he strikes coins off of this stamp and they all look exactly the same. God's power is that he can strike these coins off the same stamp of Adam and they all look different. But the other reason is that no one in the, in the future history of mankind will ever be able to say, my father is better than your father because we all have the same father. What we're witnessing now is a fledgling democracy that's about 70 years old. And I'll invite you to look at the history of the United States of America and what we look like when we were 70 years old. We brought people here to punish them from another country. Um, and, and give it a little, give it a little room give it love, uh, to be sure, hold it to the same standards that you would hold anybody else, uh, but hold everybody else to those standards as well. Does that make sense? We'll, we'll follow up at a coffee, okay? And Doug, I'll answer your question as well when we have uh, coffee and donuts. There's coffee and donuts, right? Okay, good. All right, can we get that slide up there with the lyrics again? Before, before I sing, I just want to say thank you guys so much. This has been a great honor for me. Um, I, will, I, I will say, uh, if there is no Jewish Pope, and if there was, they wouldn't pick me, so this has all been one rabbi's opinion. Um, and uh, I just wanted to be able to uh, express my gratitude for being able to share that with you. So I'll start by humming the tune, and then when we uh, go through a couple of verses, we'll sing it together, okay? And do me a favor. Move closer. Move closer. As I say uh, in my congregation, 
if you have a person next to you and you also have an arm, put those together. It sounds better, it feels better the closer people are together. Shalom, everybody.